Well, I'll tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be the magnificent George Martin multi-prologue extravaganza. There are two guardsmen atop these steps, and one of them's called Red Lester, which is which is a cheese in England. <laughs> <laughs> it was really odd. It was like, I had to read that twice. It was like, Red Lester. I didn't know his name, but he was the knight with the red chicken on his shield. (laughs) Hello and welcome to part one of book four of Game of Thrones. It's Sharklive Royal. We're back on the Game of Thrones wagon. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. So the first thing to say then is this is a podcast about the book rather than the series of Game of Thrones, although we do talk about both as and when. So this is about A Feast for Crows. We're going to do this in ten parts. This is what Shark Live Royal always does with Game of Thrones. Break it down to ten parts, run it effectively alongside the TV series, but um, it's primarily the book rather than the TV series. This is getting a bit harder to do because uh, this series is increasingly veering away from the book. So you may (laughs) well find that if you... Yeah, you may well find that if you're watching the series and reading the book, you're almost moving towards two almost different stories now <laughs> yeah and I, I quite like that this is a this is something that I've become more aware of as I've moved through the series where like it's the 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 series is is diverging more and more and I'm conscious that the story really isn't going to get wrapped up in a couple of books sort of thing and the fact that George Martin hasn't published the next book and there's another one to come after that as well and I was kind of wondering when the TV series guys would just go George look just give us your notes and we'll do it for you, okay? Well, just don't worry about it. Just, it's okay, you take your time, you're the artist, that's all right, but, you know, we've got to publish next year. So, uh, how about you get a move on, eh? Yeah, this moment is upon them, I think, because uh, the uh, apparently the, the series, by the end of this series and the TV version, they will have passed the... Uh, the Dance for Dragons book, which is the book after this one. So the series is galloping ahead in some ways. It's also keeping pace in, in others, but we'll, we will won't get too far into that. Our, our focus, as ever, is always on the book. So it's into 10 parts. And um, what we do each week is we say, this is how far we're going this week. Read up to there and then listen to the cast. Uh, and then you can send your own uh, thoughts in as well. Uh, we've got the email address, sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. And we've also got uh, Twitter at sharkliveroyal. So today we're going from the start of A Feast for Crows, as far as, by my book, so my version, which is a HarperCollins paperback, it's page 87, which is a chapter which is about Sam, which starts, Sam was reading about the others when he saw the mouse. So <gasps> quite the cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I, always, I think that mice are the most terrifying beasts in the world of Westeros. That's definitely been my uh, impression. Yeah, so so that's where you read up to and no further um, for this cast today. Uh, so let's let's get let's get straight. In. in fact, before we go straight into it, Dave, I mean we've had a bit of a break now, haven't we? Because we did uh, we did a Storm <laughs> of Swords and a Clash of Kings and a Game of Thrones pretty much all all at once. Um, so is, how does it feel to be we finally did, going yeah. back to it? Well, I was a bit nervous to be honest because we did six months of Game of Thrones before, and I did love it, and it was it was a great kind of like it was wonderful to experience the story at that sort of heft. Um, but at the same time, it was like 
bloody hell, I know this world inside out and back to front, and is this ever just going to come back from being almost like a degree-level thing to being like an entertaining sort of thing? But we've read some very, very different stuff in the meantime. We've read Charles Dickens, we've read Jane Austen, we've read an hour more comic book, and now we're back on this, and I am looking forward to it, and I'm quite glad that six months has been enough to kind of refresh the palette, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, let's start. We're going to do something slightly different this time as well. You can get us. Obviously, um, you could either listen to this in one of two ways. Really, now there's the there's the um, classic Shortlive Royal podcast where we do all these various different books, including these these hefty looks at Game of Thrones, and you can get us there. Or if you search for Game of Thrones with Shortlive Royal, you'll find a podcast which is just about Game of Thrones. It's basically just the Shortlive Royal episodes about Game of Thrones, if that is what you're particularly interested in. You know what? You could just have both. Have the best of both worlds. <laughs> you could. You should, really. 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 Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. If you, yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're a real Sharklet, that's what you'd be doing. Sh- did, no. did you just coin the word Sharklet? <laughs> I think I've used it a few a while back, yeah. But I'm, I'm going to oh. go back to it. I like it. A, yeah. sh- a sharklet, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so now, my little sharklets, it's time to <laughs> leap in. <laughs> the Game of Thrones, leaping football. to the churning ocean, churning freezing cold ocean <laughs> that is Game of Thrones, a feast for crows. Yeah. Um, I, su- I suppose we should say here, um, just because I'm, I'm sure. Some people have probably already switched off or will be bashing the podcast against the uh, against the wall and saying, it's called A Song of Ice and Fire, not A Game of Thrones. And um, that's true. The series is called A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, we agree. We just sometimes use Game of Thrones as shorthand so you can sort of, I don't know, because that's what the series calls it, I suppose. Let's, uh, so, so without further ado, we've teased you enough. Let's get into it. Um, so we start off, and this I tell you what, he loves, he loves a prologue, doesn't he, George? And um, oh, yeah, he's done he it again. <laughs> he loves a prologue with characters you've never ever heard of because you, you, you and, and back will thinking, never hear oh. of again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, wonder what's happened to Jamie. Wonder what's happened to Cersei. Wonder what's happened to John over at the Wall. What about the Starks? Never mind any of that. We're going to go and meet Pate in old time. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a fascinating chap. And he, also, is it not as if George gets enough time killing all the other characters in his regular? point of view character chapters <laughs> it's as if he starts writing a book and goes I haven't killed anybody for a while should probably kill somebody I'm going to invent somebody yeah. just so I can kill them inside the next 15 pages because I'm George R. R. Martin and I don't give a shit so yeah it's basically these these uh, apprentices so you, you go to Old Town um, if you want to become a maester it's sort of mm. it's sort of like the Oxford of, of Westeros or Cambridge, okay, if you want to go for that. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> fairly X-rated version of Cambridge, though, isn't it? Cambridge, yeah. if the if Cambridge, the streets of Cambridge were sort of prowled by weird hooded assassins. Who? Well, I don't know what happens at the end of this. We'll get to it, but it's definitely yeah. not. Uh, it's not really dreaming spies. Yeah. So there are these apprentices all sitting outside the pub. It's just sort of shooting the shit, really, and it's 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 not just. I mean, you're introduced to a lot of characters very quickly, and you sort of try. I found out to read this a couple of times, just to remember who was who. Yeah, me too. So you've got yeah. Molander, who's this sort of son of a knight with a club foot. You've got Alarius, who's this like handsome archer. You've got Rune, who is fat. I think that's his entire 
characteristics. Uh, you've got Pate, who's this this gangly, spotty guy who fancies a tavern wench. Um, you've got Armin, who's an acolyte. Uh, mm. And yeah, yeah. So you've got all these people like, having a chat. And um, <clears throat> the focus is on Pate, who's a. Uh, he he wants to get some money to to pay for this uh, this young girl who's uh, who's in a whorehouse. Is she obviously a tavern? Some I don't know if all the difference is a tavern wench in a whorehouse. But anyway, um, I'm fairly certain that, that functionally the difference is probably quite small. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. His um his t- Pate's teacher is called Archmaester Wal Walgrave, um and apparently Walgrave is is really like. He's really old and he's, he's doddery and he's, he's, he's slowing down a bit. And he keeps talking about... He keeps calling Pate Crescent. So, um, Crescent oh, the, right. You know, I didn't yeah, notice dude, that dude. before, but actually that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but if this nice. guy was... If this guy was old enough that Crescent was a young'un and Crescent's a fairly old bloke, do you know what I mean? Like, this, yeah, this guy yeah, must yeah, be exactly. sort of 100 yeah. and whatever. Yeah. Um, there's, I'll, I'll, I do like that layering in this book. There's also the layering of um, the, the this. They're talking about dragons. They're hearing these rumors from across the sea about uh, dragons, and uh, they're all, they always center around some young sort of woman who's got a lot got three dragons, and in various forms these stories have been told. But it, I quite like how that that's slowly seeping into Westeros now. This sort of news. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's this guy called Leo who turns up, called Lazy Leo. It turns out he's a Tyrell, um, so he's related uh, to you know, Loras and Marjorie and all that. Um, and isn't and he it, just a shining example of why we should all <laughs> respect and admire and follow the gentry without thinking? Isn't he just a, a great <laughs> advert for a, a non-meritocratic society? What a cock, yeah. honestly. Yeah, yeah. He, he may as well have a, a sign around his neck that just says everything wrong with privilege. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah>. Brilliant! <laughs> it's another one of those, another one of those um, uh, inner monologues where you could just listen to what he's thinking, and he's just thinking, "I'm a tool. I'm a tool. I'm a massive tool. I'm a tool." <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's there's this the, the, the talk is around dragons, and it's also about more magic seeping back into the world, and this, there are these things that. Um, in when you're learning to be a maester, one of the final things you do is you sit in this room, darkened room all night with a glass candle, and uh, you can't yeah. light it, and it's just to show that you, you can't do everything. And loads of people end up cutting their hands because they they think they can they can be the one to light it. And there's yeah. this rumor now that one of the one of the candles is lit, which shows that the sort of Ooh. weird shit is getting weirder. Yeah, <clears throat> which is good. I quite, I quite like all, and there's, there's red priests in town as well. So they're having, so the, the red gods are having an influence here as well because you have all yeah. these different religions, don't you? Which are, which are cropping up. It's, yeah. This is quite good. I've got to say, as a prologue, this is quite good at just, just setting down. You know, this is where the world is at now, isn't it? And getting you back into the, the, the thinking of this world. Yeah, and it does it. And this is obviously really well calculated to kind of tease. The fans, particularly, um, because Old Town is this place we've heard so much about and never been to, and it seems to have this like really mm. central role. Everywhere has a maester, right? And there's this whole kind of, you know, you would think of you would think it would be the capital almost if it's sending out all of this power and skill and knowledge and stuff. 
And we've never been there and never really heard very much mm. about it. It's just this sort of mythical place filled with intelligent men in long robes. Um, and yeah. so I quite liked seeing it. And of course, this is Game of Thrones. So you go and you see this kind of, you know, this place honoured in song and story and reputation. And it turns out it has the same seedy underbelly as everywhere else. Um, mm, uh, yeah. Just yeah. a really nice little bit of colour and resolved the particular question for me that I really did not know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they said, and they do have a big plot point here where the chapter ends. Pate, who's the the, the gangly spotty kid who wants who needs money, mm. he has stolen a key. We don't know what the key's for, but he's stolen this key uh, mm. because he's been promised some money for it. And he meets this uh, this alchemist uh, in this shady back street, this hooded figure, mm. and he gives him the key. He gets the money. And he bites the gold. I'm not sure if that's relevant to check that it's right. If that's how he gets poisoned or something. But it ends with him. Oh. I, yeah, it might be, or it might just be something. I don't know. This is that's a complete guess because I don't don't think it's made clear later on anyway. Um, yeah. And he ends up sort of fainting on the ground. And from what the guy, what the sort of bloke who's killed him says, it's, it seems that he's dead because the guy says, "Oh, you'll never understand." As the as Pate yeah. uh, as Pate collapses. It's it's weird that, but the way it was described, I thought maybe there was a bit of magic going on there. I that that kind of smelled mm. to me a little bit like one of those sequences you get with the uh, it's the House of the Undying, um, mm. you know, like where you know the ground seemed to turn to water beneath him and all of this. Just a bit, it was a bit odd. So I think yeah, maybe he has been poisoned, or maybe the 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 uh, the alchemist is some sort of something. I don't know, but mm. um, but it was it was proper creepy by the way though did you notice that like he wants to go and he's given away this key so he can get a coin which is enough if i followed it for him to sleep once with this woman from the bar right yeah i think i think it's um i think it's enough to because she's this woman from the bar is like a virgin um right it's to buy i think it's almost to, i think it's to buy her out so um what like like because- buy her as a wife almost uh, yeah, sort of, sort of pay to have her freed from the from this place. Yeah, so he can leave. So he's basically he's basically getting himself. Yeah, basically buying a wife, I suppose. Um, and it's it's she's so expensive, this girl, because she's obviously she's so young and um and uh, yeah, you got a lot of they'll get they'll get a lot of service out of her. I'd imagine at the at the tavern. Oh, okay, right that. I suppose that makes marginally more sense, but it did seem to me a bit strong. This because this is like this felt to me like stealing the nuclear codes, right? A key to every <laughs> single door in the home of knowledge and arcane power in this land that's run by knowledge and arcane power. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. get that for a bit of jewelry. What? <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to seriously ratchet up your ambition, my son. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Um, now, we we move away from there then, so we, we go to the next place, and again, he's teasing you further, he's saying, I'm not going to give you a, a, a character you know yet, Oh, we're going to yeah. go to another oh, character you've not met. Bloody hell, yeah. Matt, I, I'll level with you, I because you primed me so marvellously on the idea that A Feast of Crows was a really frustrating <laughs> book, I thought I'd at least get a honeymoon period, and then this he cracks this <laughs> stuff out where the, the, the character isn't even named, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I went and looked at the... <laughs> at the the contents list and I was like mm. you know expecting this character to come again and he doesn't so this is like George going I need two prologues 
shut up, I'm George Martin, I can do what I want, I need two prologues. I'm having two prologues, and you can't stop me having two prologues. Fuck off. And he was yeah. like, give me the characters I know. <laughs> so this chapter is called The Prophet. Um, it starts, it's, it's the most cheery upbeat first line you'll ever achieve. <laughs> the prophet was drowning men on great wick when they came to tell him that the king was dead. <laughs> So. It's, that's almost like a competition winner, isn't it? In 15 <laughs> yeah. words or less, describe the bleakest possible environment you can imagine. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so it's not it's not going to be a cheery uh, it's not going to be a cheery chapter. This, but this yeah. is, this so this is back on um, the Iron Islands uh, where Theon's from, and this guy is Erwin Damper, Damp the prophet, and he's this sort of he's one of Theon's uncles, so one of the heirs mm. to the to, to, to the to the throne after Balon Greyjoy's died. And um, he's this religious fanatic, and by drowning, they do mean drowning, to, to become part of the sort of the religious order here, you get drowned in the sea, and then they give you sort of, they try and resuscitate your body afterwards, and if yeah. you come back to life, then you've been drowned, and you sort of, you're a part of the club. It's quite the initiation, isn't it? <laughs> I was going to say, that's some fairly intense hazing, isn't it? Now, you can be part yeah. of the club, but we're going to have to kill you first. No, 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 mm. no! It's tradition. Although, although, yeah. is it tradition? Did you get that impression that this that this bloke particularly, like throughout this chapter, you get the sense that he's kind of developed a new kind of zealot form of this drowned god religion? Um, you know, where like because some of the other people who come up and he says, you know, were you drowned for the god? And they say yes, and he says, well, you were just splashed with water a bit as a child, weren't you? Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and he's but he's doing this full on. If you haven't. If you haven't, to all intents and purposes, passed away, you're not properly a part of this religion. Um, yeah, and it, yeah, it's scary stuff. Yeah, I got the impression that that was what they used to do, like back in the day, and he's just uh, going yeah. back to the old school. And they've sort, they've all, everybody else has tend to moved on over the years from that, and now they say, you know, just <laughs> splash your water on your head will do. Yeah, um, but he's saying no, 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 <laughs> yeah. no, 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 it's all if, or nothing. If it ain't shite, it ain't right. <laughs> now uh, the the main thrust of this chapter is it's it's introducing us to the politics of uh, of the Iron Islands because Balin Greyjoy, who was the king there, um, is dead. Uh, he he died, and this this is where um, Damper finds this out, and that creates mm. a bit of a succession crisis because you've got you've got what is it three brothers and then Theon and Asher who is who are. Balon's sons. So you got Balon, okay, mm. and you got Balon's brothers, uh, three of those, and then you got Balon's kids, Asher and and Theon, and it's who's going to become king now. Yeah. And uh, it turns out the el- the eldest son, Euron, who's this sort of fairly creepy sounding bloke, um, just so happened to uh, to sail back to the Iron Islands after being away for years and years. The day after. <laughs> Balon died, which is a bit suspect. Um, <laughs> I'm back. What? What happened? <laughs> I'm amazed. Are you trying anyway. to tell me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what a coincidence. Yeah, so there's him. There's a, a guy called Victorian, who's the sort of second eldest, and um, seems like he's, he's away somewhere, but he's sort of... Aaron Damper's choice. Then mm. there's Aaron himself, who believes because of his position as a religious man, he does he's not interested in the throne anyway. And then you've got Asher, who later on in the um, 
later on in the chapter, it's clear that she's going to make a claim. Just just to be clear, if you watch the series, Asha is Yara in um, in the TV series. So we're talking about right. the same character there. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's Theon, but Theon appears to he's in basically he's in no he's in no state to to become a king is he, at the moment. So <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I've actually lost he's, track he's a little lost. bit of Theon here because he was. I mean, in the TV series, during series four, they just did, they really, really, really dwelt on him becoming, um, uh, what's his, the Bastard of Bolton's absolute bitch. Um, yeah. But that didn't really happen in the book so much, did it? Like, I didn't see quite so much of that kind of, you know, like the, the harrowing of Theon Greyjoy sort of thing. Yeah, I'm uh, not 100% sure where we got with it in the book, but, um, it's it's a lot harder to see where Theon goes in the book. He um he kind of disappears, mm. and he gets yeah, he gets he's not tied in this up at all, is he? No, he gets tied up with this um this Reek persona, yeah, and um and it sort of it it brings that sort of whole thing together. So you're not really sure who who or what he is now, um, but mm. yeah, he he's he's basically at this stage he's a broken man over in a uh, somewhere in the north. Um, and he, he appears for all intents and purposes to be lost to the Iron Islanders. Mm. Um, oh, there was, there's also um, Aaron also remembers uh, his brother Uri, uh, who was also um, growing up with him, and he died rather horrifically. Um, yeah. Apparently, it seems that they were because pl- the Iron Islands is a rough place, and they were yeah. playing um, some kind of like five finger. What's it called? Like the five finger dance or something where. It basically involves your hand spread spread out on a table and a knife, and uh, trying to not. If you ever seen Alien, the the robot does it, the android, <laughs> and it's sort of trying to. I think it might have been a Western thing actually. Um, you 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 spread out your palm, and then mm. you you sort of try and hit the the bits in between your fingers without hitting your fingers with a knife as fast as you can. Yeah, fun enough. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I actually bore witness to somebody doing that in the first year of university. It's a very first year of university thing to try and do when somebody's <laughs> had too much to drink. Holy crap, man. That was like, that was, that. Is, look, if you need a quick way of getting sober, just have somebody in the room who's about to start playing that game, let me tell you. There's no such thing as playing <laughs> that thing drunk. <laughs> yeah, so I think it might be something like that. Anyway, they were, they were doing that. And um, and he <clears throat> ended up with his hand chopped off. This Uri guy, and um, he's, bear in mind, he's still a child. And then when they tried to heal him, like some maester tried to heal him, and and it didn't work, and he died. Yeah. Um, and that sort of pushed Aaron a bit more further down this path as well. It seems it's that it's not clear uh, to me what uh, he thinks that the solution would have been, though, because the maester turned up, and fair enough, the maester used like boiling oil and herbs and whatever. But what mm. was what was the alternative? You know, was the drowned god's healing policy at this point is just like throw the hand in the ocean, it will grow back if it's supposed to. Like it strikes me that they're not a very kind of nurturing culture on the Iron Islands. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So whatever I'd imagine it would have been something is, like that. Probably isn't very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the. Uh, the, the, the bit more background to Aaron as well was that he. It turns out he was a, a bit of a, a bit of a drunken fool for a while. He was just sort of, you know, the younger son, not much responsibility, but still had the title. So, 
you know, used to have a lot of fun and a lot of drink, uh, was relatively popular. And then he and then he drowned, or he nearly drowned. He was involved in some big shipwreck, mm. and he kept, he sort of he got his fanaticism from that, yeah. and he's he's been this this bony old fanatic ever since, who wears only a a little yeah. bit of cloth to hide his cock, and the rest of him is absolutely yeah. naked <laughs> on a place it's, where the the wind howls. It's basically it's basically like the north of Scotland, and he just wears <laughs> a little rag. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> It's as if it's as if somebody in Stornoway or something turned up, had a look at the kilts and went, pussies, and then just turned it into a <laughs> yeah. loincloth instead. I mean, imagine a sort of, like, it's North Welsh caravan park loincloth <laughs> is what we're talking about. <laughs> but yeah. by the way, yeah, if, if any of our listeners in the US have never been to either North Wales or North Scotland, I'll tell you this. They're beautiful, but you want to be wearing socks when you go there. Let's put it that way. Yeah, a loincloth yeah. is not the item of attire for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Aaron Damper goes to... He sort of finds out more about what's happened to the king, about what's going on with the greater politics now, and he's trying to work out the best way to act to, to, to keep Euron off the throne, basically. And... Um, he goes for the midnight swim, which seems to be his way of getting inspiration. And in the end, he decides that um, a king's moot will be the answer. And this is basically some old-fashioned thing that they used to do to to pick their own king, where everybody turns up at this meeting place, and whoever wants to be king says why they think they should be king, and they choose the best one. And he thinks yeah. he'll be able to engineer Victorian onto the throne through that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's another little introduction to another part of the world. I so did I expect quite that- like that actually, like the the sort mm. of the um, bit more of the Iron Islands because the Iron Islands so far have been a sort of slapstick image of what happens if you took humanity and wrung every last piece of human kindness out of it. Like that's been the Iron mm. Island shtick, and I'm quite happy to see a little bit of complexity introduced here and kind of understand it a bit more. Again, same with Old Town. You know, these are places which I think are important, but where I've spent no time. Mm. Um, and so, so I did. I quite like. I forgave. Like I was, I was pissed at the beginning because I was like George, George. <laughs> but um, but this one, this one was actually all right. I thought it was just pretty good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, well, it's about time to catch up with a, a well-known character then. So, um, what do you reckon? King's Landing, the Wall, maybe yeah, the Marine, yeah. something like that. Actually, I mean, I'm pro- I'm about ready to get on a wavelength with uh, probably Daenerys. Actually, let's go see what's going on with Daenerys. Oh, Tyrion! No, no. Hey, I wonder when no, no, Tyrion's no, 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 no. going to make an achievement. <laughs> I tell you what, let, let, let's what? go to Dawn instead. Oh, fuck off! <laughs> 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 I mean, it's brave, isn't it? I'll give that to George Martin. He, he spends the first three chapters with no characters that we've ever really spent any time with before. We've only really heard of them in passing at best. Yeah, and and again, I do. I I like that kind of broader world thing. And in a way, it, actually, this is maybe this is weird, but the um, the TV series opening sequence is so good because it shows you the parts of the world that you're going to interact with this time. Mm. And um, and it's a really, really amazing. Like, I really like seeing it. But um, at the same time, I, I kind of feel like George has gone, at the start of this book, he's gone, right, what do I need to do to tell, wrap, wrap this, put a bow on this puppy inside the next four novels. 
<laughs> well, shit, I'm going to have to start talking about fucking Dawn, aren't I? Right, we'll put down the Dawn. <laughs> Old Town's going to have to make an appearance, right? <laughs> shit, that's another one. Fuck, I've got to do some more Iron Island shit and Theon somebody's gimp in a castle on the other side of the <laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> the fuck am I going to do? Well, I'll tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be the magnificent George Martin multi-prologue extravaganza. <laughs> Yeah. So this is part three of the trilogy in the prologue extravaganza. So we go to Dawn, um, and we meet the captain of the guards, who's this guy called um, Ario Hota, who's this absolute hulking beast of a man um, with an enormous axe, and he's this sort of he's this uh, fiercely, supremely loyal guy who's the sort of the key bodyguard for the prince of uh, for the prince of Dawn. Um, and he just he's just this hulking great mountain of a man, isn't he? And it's funny whenever he sees a, it, there's various points in this chapter where he thinks about various people he might have to fight, and how it'll be a shame if he has to kill them. He's supremely confident in his own ability. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird to come across somebody like that in Westeros, isn't there? Because because usually they're kind of. All of that stuff is external and it's bluster and it's part of projecting your power. But he quite literally talks softly and carries a big stick. And I quite like that yeah. about this character. Yeah, and that I suppose that, uh, I mean, as far as talking softly, reflects his, his boss. So Prince Doran is the uh, is the brother of uh, of Prince Oberyn who was killed in the... Uh, by the mountain in the last book mm. so the news of that is just reaching dawn now and dawn's always been this sort of independent kingdom um always had a fairly difficult relationship to say the least with uh with the rest of westeros yeah and this chapter is basically all about what's dawn going to do in response to this and prince prince doran is um he's quite sickly isn't he he's got dreadful gout and um and he's very quiet and he just his whole appearance says weakness, doesn't it? And yeah. compared to the compared to the women, um, the, the the sand snakes, who are the the daughters of uh, of Prince Oberyn, mm. um, who are will meet each one one at a time through this chapter, and they're all de- desperate for vengeance in various mm. ways. Mm. And he's much more cautious, isn't he? And they believe to the point of weakness. What did you think? Um. It's difficult because I'm. I kind of don't want to go hating on one of the only characters in the whole of Westeros who seems to have heard of the idea of like nuance, because everybody else yeah. is just out to kill or dominate or you know somehow exclude everybody that's not them. And here's here's a guy who seems to have a more kind of like nuanced approach to it. But ultimately, I did think he was making some fairly poor decisions. Um, you know, mm. he was. Given, given the rules of the game, and given that Dawn has this kind of weird semi-detached place in the War of the Five Kings, right, where they're kind of involved because they're there, but they're not really involved, and everybody's like, yeah, but Dawn's kind of its own special thing. That's quite a good asset that you could kind of play off. Um, mm. uh, but I tell you what, he couldn't be more different than Prince Oberyn as well. Why did Prince Oberyn go to have this fight when there was the only person who was in charge back home was this guy with a sort of horribly swollen joints and not really much stomach for a fight. I would have thought mm. that he would, you know, he could have he could have taken the town to the absolute cleaners. He could have been king there. But clearly he didn't care about any of that. He just wanted to go and kill the mountain. And he did. Yeah, I do get the impression that there was a, 
um, for all the differences, that there was a close connection between the two of them, like these two princes, yeah, and yeah. they were both sort of two parts of. The, and the, the interesting thing is, um, with the reasons for Oberyn going over there, I don't think it's very clear even when Doran explains it, because when he speaks to one of the um, daughters, he says, um, you know, it was only supposed to be there to sort of, to do a bit of a recce, if you like, to see which friends we had there, <laughs> see who, you know, things like that. But he says to another daughter that um, oh, he, he promised me that he would make, because he said uh, he, we always used to play in the water gardens and uh, and knock over bigger children when he was really little. And he promised to me that he'd knock over a bigger guy again this time. Um and that's why I let him go, suggesting that the whole point was to go and get revenge. So I'm not sure. I, I do have a bit of a thing with Prince Doran where you wonder what, you know, what he says and what he thinks and whether they're always the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I definitely find, you know, story number two out of those two more believable than story number one. Story number, like story number <laughs> yeah. two fits with Prince Oberyn. The very idea of sending somebody as unstable as Prince Oberyn to just go and have a quick look at stuff and then come back again. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's like sending the mountain to a needlepoint class. It's just, it's not his environment, is it? Subtlety, not something for Prince Oberyn, as we saw. Mm. Yeah, so we meet Prince Ober. We meet um, Prince Doran in the um, in the the water, what are called the water gardens. This sort of retreat away from the uh, the city, uh, Sunspear, where uh, a, a lot of these kids are playing. And he likes to spend his afternoons just sitting there watching just children playing in the garden. Kind of gives you a good idea as to to why um, Dawn has uh, has stayed out of the fighting so carefully so far with a leader like this. Um, and then the eldest daughter of uh, Prince Oberyn, uh, called Obera, rather rather unimaginatively, um, turns up, and she uh, wants to. She basically wants to raise an army and march on Old Town and, and sack it, as a sort of as response to to, to the death of to the death of uh, her dad. Mm, and yeah. uh, Prince Doran says, "You know, you'll think about it." Um, every time the uh, they've killed my dad argument comes out of the sand snakes prince doran actually <clears throat> often musters a, a sort of a a short defense saying well you know he was he was killed in a trial by combat which he really had no business being in so yeah. you, you know how much was it their fault but uh you know one of the other sisters at the end says you know we sent our dad over there and we've we've got his bones back so that's all the mm. that's all the nuance you need, you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, the second sand snake, Lady Nim, um, meets uh, meets Prince Dorin on the way because Prince Dorin then makes his way back to the capital because he thinks he needs to show his face there now because things are getting getting a little out of hand because um, yeah. of the sort of reaction to to what's happened. So Lady Nim appears and she basically chats to him and says. She doesn't want to raise an army. She thinks that's, you know, the wrong approach. She just wants to take herself and one of the other sisters, sneak into King's Landing and assassinate, basically, Jamie, Cersei, uh, Tommen, <laughs> and uh, and Tywin, who they don't realise he's dead at this stage. <laughs> I just It's totally magnificent, isn't it? Because she kind of pitches it as though it's a more sensible plan. 
you know, <laughs> yeah. it kind of comes along and it's like, you know, uh, the first person's like kind of, right, I'm going to go over there, I'm going to raise an army, I'm going to fucking lay waste. I'm going to leave not a thing <laughs> living between here and there. I am going to dominate. And he goes, yeah, probably not, eh? Probably chill it out a little <laughs> bit. And then and she, this second one turns up and he goes, he goes, you're not going to do the same thing as your sister, are you? She goes, no, 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 no. no I'm just going to walk <laughs> in there and I'm going to kill them all. But only the people in charge. But, you know, I'm, I'm still going to kill them all. As though that's like the reasoned, considered response. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Doran says to that, especially about Tommen, he says, you know, this is just a, a, a bot. Because Tommen in the in the books is still only about 10, I think. He's really young. He says yeah. this is a child who hasn't done anyone any harm. And I don't know. It, it's nice to see someone with that humanity. But do you worry that that's sort of also a bit of a weakness in this world? Yes, I mean it's very clear we're, we're four books in. There's no, there's no denying that any sign of human kindness is going to be ruthlessly crushed into the ground by George Martin. Probably not mm. by you getting killed, but by your loved ones getting killed. That's 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 the approach. Yeah, it does seem that Dawn is is a bit more civilized than the rest of the world. Um, I mean, it's certainly more permissive. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a bit. I think, it's, I think it's the eldest. Think it's the eldest daughter says that. Um, when everyone found out Prince Oberyn's died, um, all all the whores in the city were like doing free sex and wouldn't take any money as sort of a tribute to him. <laughs> Bloody hell! He, 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 God, can you imagine? Shit! <laughs> That's the legacy you want, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I die, I hope everybody gets shags for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. It, again, uh, Doran sort of says, "Well, let me think about it," and she goes away, um, sort of, and waits. And then we meet uh, Tyen, who's the third eldest. Um, when he gets back, it's basically he gets back to Sunspear, and it is like the 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 small folk this the the regular people are almost rioting at this stage they they're thirsty for war and for blood it seems mm. um and prince dorian gets taken up to his palace and he meets tyen who's the third eldest mm. and um she seems to be more the sort of diplomat than her, the her other two um she wants to create she wants to basically create a war by do you remember Mar- marcella who's the uh the daughter of cersei um yeah sort yeah. of Tommen's sister. She's currently in Dawn because Tyrion sent her over there way back when in sort of Clash of, Clash of Kings yeah. for her own safety. And what Tyen wants to do is uh, crown her queen and say that she's the queen of all Westeros and then drawing in the uh, Lannister armies into Dawn so they can defeat them there. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, Doran says, mm, maybe I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And it, se- it seems that she is maybe even the most dangerous of the three, Tyen, because she she takes Doran's hand and everyone freaks out and ushers her away. And then they check in his hand for scratches and stuff as if, like, maybe she's poisoned him. So no one seems to trust her at all. Yeah, it's well, weird. it's clear to me that she, she is the kind of... She's not quite as unhinged right now, it would seem, as Cersei Lannister. But she's mm. she's still fairly up there, isn't she? She's it's like because that's exactly what Cersei would do. She'd be like, "I have the children, I have their balls." Yeah, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, so so that, that that's the three the three offers he's had basically. He also speaks to the youngest daughter, who isn't seen he's isn't classed as one of the sand snakes. The, the sand snakes is this title given to the three eldest who are these uh, notoriously dangerous women. And it, the the youngest, Ariane, is um there's obviously we've seen this through um Ario Hotha's eyes, and he's obviously got a lot of affection for her. Um in these mm. sort of this very sort of fatherly way. And she's being um she sort of has a has a word with her dad as well about what's going to happen with with, with sorry with uh, her uncle as well about what's going to happen. Um, and there's also my Marcella's there with Aerys uh, Oakheart, who's one of the Kingsguard, who's been sent with her, and yeah. he, he keeps popping up through this chapter. And it seems like he's a, he's still wearing a, like his full plate armor, which you would normally wear in like the cold parts of Westeros. <laughs> and he's basically in you know southern Mediterranean climate now, and he's just sweltering <laughs> every day. The poor bastard. <laughs> Imagine him being like, "I instantly regret this decision. I should have packed my li- I should have packed my seaside armor. Is what I should have done." <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, the decision that uh, Prince Doran makes is to arrest all three of the Sand Snakes and lock them up. He he seems to big play, big play, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, he seems to be desperate to maintain this splendid isolationism sort of piece of any piece at any price yeah um position and he ends thinking you know he hopes that the the news gets back to king's landon and tywin realizes how loyal he's being yeah um, which which as we know is a policy doomed to failure <laughs> yeah isn't it yeah yeah uh, unless Tywin's going to make some miraculous recovery from being shot on the privy, his uh, <laughs> his days of uh, realizing who his friends are uh, are well and truly over. Yeah. Okay, you've been through your triple prologue. It's time to hit a character that we know, hopefully a character that we love. It's time for Cersei. <laughs> hey! <laughs> now I, I'm not wrong, am I? This is the first time we've been inside Cersei's head. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So she's so, my POV. So three characters I didn't know, followed by what that was supposed to be the warm, familiar, welcoming embrace of the inner monologue of Cersei King Lannister. How <laughs> terrifying is that? Yeah, and what an inner monologue it is. Uh, this is so. This is her. Uh, waking in the middle of the night, she's having a nightmare about Tyrion, basically, um, who's uh, she sort of still fears is going to ruin everything and how prescient that dream is. Um, she's awakened in the middle of the night to 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 discover that Tywin's been killed, her dad. Um, and Cersei's sort of... I, I actually had a quite a bit of sympathy for her during bits of this because it's that dealing with the sudden shock of losing someone so enormous in, in her life yeah. and the fact that everybody around her just doesn't seem to seem to I don't know, be up to scratch and nothing that anyone can do around her really can make a difference. Yeah. And actually, some of the stuff that's going on, it, it is a terrifying moment for her, um, which yeah, I don't know. Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah. So um, she she gets up, she's uh, she, she, she's on the way to see him, to see his body. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is a, <laughs> it's a weird moment. Page 59, let me just bring it up. She's walking to, she's walking up sort of the you know towards the room and there are two guardsmen atop these steps and one of them's called Red Lester which is <laughs> which is a cheese in England <laughs> <laughs> which was really odd it's like 
had to read that twice. I was like, Red Leicester. Yeah, you wait, wait for his mate to come along, Cheddar George, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's by the by. It was just something I noticed. Um, she, Cersei realizes that. I mean, she she's thinking as this is happening. Right now, timing's dead. I've got to move. Like like she did when uh, Robert died. I've got to move mm. to consolidate power, and yeah. I can rule now. Um, and I've got to, you know, I was the son that he, that was the closest thing to a son that he had. So I've got to sort of do him justice. Yeah. But she also realizes that this, that, that she's losing power already. That they, the fact that they've sent for her last, everybody else is already there when she gets into the room, and it's clear that like nobody wanted to wake. It wasn't sort of like, oh shit, Tywin's dead. We better get Cersei up to see what you know what we should do next. It was let's try and handle her. Um, let's work out what to do and then get her. And she's very aware of that. She 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 can be in places quite astute, Cersei. But then she can be spectacularly stupid in other places. She really, but it's the the same malice plays itself out no matter how ostensibly smart or ridiculous she's being. Right, like underneath it all, there's this. Mm. She's she's. I think I think it's really interesting. Is she? I think she's basically insane. Like, mm. I think she's, like, she's capable of acting out the crazy things she's decided in, a in a like, a ruthlessly rational way. But fundamentally, I think her whole view of the world is skewed by her kind of, by the trauma of her experience. And so everything, like, being inside her head is really weird. Like, hearing her narrate out why, you know, it's a good idea to do this or that or move here or do this or not do this, you know. Mm. Really yeah. odd. Yeah. Now the um, the rep the fearsome reputation of Tywin Lannister um, does get a, a bit of a knock in the way that he's died, doesn't it? In two main re- <laughs> reasons: one, he's been shot on the toilet, which yeah. is <laughs> doesn't matter how magnificent you've been in life. It's like Elvis; you die in the <laughs> toilet. It's not going to help your sort of uh, <laughs> you know your, yep. your, your image. Put it that way. Um, so there's that. And Cersei can't quite believe that that's how he's been killed. But also, they find Shay's body in his bed as well. Yeah. And he was had he had this famous image for not being interested in any other women, uh, being utterly devoted to his wife, uh, especially even after she died, and yeah. having this hatred for whores and being above all that kind of stuff. Mm. And this is again is it's just a it's a secret that he would have never wanted to come to light and yeah. just the manner of his death has. has meant it has yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and th- that sort of um that sort of death comes to us all you know like the the power games that they played in life are meaningless in the face of their their experience of death you know that's i think that's something that happens again and again and again in game of thrones sorry in a, a song of ice and fire and it's really is bleak but really powerfully done right mm. um, yeah and, and particularly because it was his son as we know who killed him so somebody who's like the very opposite of his you know physical power and magnificence shot him in the dick while he was having a poo yeah. and that killed him do you know what mm. i mean like just just the 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 utter humiliation uh, you know couldn't have happened to a nicer psycho as far as i'm concerned but <laughs> There's also this um, just just slightly sad note about Shay. I mean, Shay's a character that we've come to to dislike anyway because of the way she treated Tyrion. But um, mm. it it like Cersei sees her body and, and recognizes vaguely recognizes her, and then remembers that after 
obviously Shea gave evidence against Tyrion in the in his trial, mm. um, basically on promises that Cersei gave her about various bits of wealth and stuff. And Cersei yeah. just sort of very quickly just well, rather offhanded the rumours. Oh yeah, I remember her coming to me asking about some you know promises and stuff that I may have made her earlier on and then she just discarded her and sent her away yeah. and it just shows again the ruthlessness of Cersei doesn't it yeah and particularly against her own family identity right because a Lannister always pays his debts but Cersei yeah. doesn't give a shit because she was a whore so you know mm. why why would you do her any favors and it's yeah cold yeah um she uh, Jamie finally turns up after trying to find out and you know, sort of trying to work out what's happened and how someone's managed to get into the into the room and it obviously eventually as we go along it turns out Tyrion's disappeared and everyone puts it together but Cersei sort of comes up to Jamie and asks him to you know you've got a rule now and he's, you've got to be hand of the king yeah. and Jamie just has absolutely nothing to do with that he basically laughs in her face they end up having this big quarrel in the middle of the room and yeah. which in the end, Sir Kevin, uh, her uncle, has to intervene and tell him to show a bit of respect. Yeah. And Cersei's aware that everybody's seen it in the room, yeah. and again, it's just it undermines her her position completely. Yeah. Um, and it's that she realizes just how badly she's handled that. Oh, just how badly it's gone. I'm not sure she realizes that it was her fault. She blames Jamie for <laughs> of his reaction. She does. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, the the moment that the kind of skies will shift. And everything will change in this series is when Cersei sits down and has a proper think and thinks, do you know what? Maybe I didn't handle that very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and she, she suddenly realises as well that Varys is nowhere to be seen and that he's always around in these kind of situations. Yeah. So suddenly the suspicion falls on him. It's funny, this whole chapter with Cersei, it's, it's sort of realisation that she needs to do something horror at something else going wrong trying yeah. to do something um, frustration that it hasn't worked out and horror again, it's just this sort of this spiral of grief and, and desperation isn't it I thought it was really. Yeah. I thought it was a really interesting read actually. Yeah I agree with you yeah and it is, I mean I think this is kind of George Martin's play for, okay this book isn't going to feature some of the people you want it to feature but it's going to feature Cersei Lannister's brain and um, and that is a fairly solid pitch. Like I think that is interesting for that reason. But um, I kind of want to see more of it to see kind of where it goes. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the next chapter, the final chapter for today, is Brienne. Um, again, I'm not sure. Have we had chapters specifically about Brienne before? Yes. Yeah, we have. In the last one, we definitely did. Right. Okay. Because she kind of went on this weird, like all the people that she was attached to died so i think they kind of had to make her into this um pov character so it's another um so we haven't we haven't come across a pov character that we've had before um in the entire first part of the book ballsy move this isn't it to get 10 percent into a novel and essentially discard all of the people who carried us through the plot last time that we cared about hmm yeah i mean obviously i haven't read the rest of the book so i don't know if we're going to come back to anybody i already know but you know mm. he's done pretty well at scattering these plot lines across the entire entirety of his world here, and mm. then he's chosen not to go back to any of them. Like what? Yeah. Now Brienne is um, searching for Sansa, uh, and this is weird if you think about it in the context of where the series is. Brienne is kind of doing that now, and mm. she spent an entire like last series pretty much 
searching for Arya and finding her and losing her. And none of that happens in the book. She just goes straight off searching for Sansa. She's nominally looking for Arya as well, but she, Sansa's the main focus, isn't it? Mm. Um, and she keeps... It's weird here that she keeps asking about Sansa and she's every person she meets, she describes her. Mm. Um, and it doesn't... There's only one person who asks what was her name. Yeah. And I find that I find that really odd. <laughs> yeah. Because surely when, when someone comes up to you and says, oh, I'm looking for a girl, she's, you know, she's got auburn hair, she's quite small, she might be with an old knight, have you seen her? Your first question would be, oh, what's her name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I that is, that is slightly weird. Although maybe everybody's just in this weird kind of, because the whole country's gone to shit, right? It's been in a state of war for, yeah. I mean, it feels like several years now. So like... I, I, maybe there's just a thing where you, everybody learns not to ask, you know, and you just kind of, have you seen... I mean, maybe it's that Schindler's yeah. List thing, right? You know, it's not, have you seen this girl? It's, have you seen the girl in the red coat sort of thing? Yeah. Have you seen the girl in the red hair? Um, yeah. I think, I don't know, maybe it's a bit tenuous, but... Well, it, it might also be um, because uh, Brienne's asking, giving the impression that she's... She she she's not she's a bit of a no you know she's not a law, a lady or a, a princess or anything she's a bit of a nobody and if you if you don't have a title then it doesn't really matter what your name is in this world so that's kind of an irrelevance you know um, people only really talk about the names and let everybody else know you know and, and ask about people's specific names if there's a if there's someone with a title. And if you've not, then it's just, you know, yourself and a couple of your close friends might know who you are. But outside of that, there's not really any point anyone yeah. else knowing you. Yeah, you know? I suppose that's true, eh? Like, you kind of... Oh, and that's that's where all these kind of um, nicknames come from, eh? You know, you get, a, you get a name based on something that you do. Something that's, mm. you know, that you kind of become mm. like the Kingslayer or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or Illifa the Penniless, who we're just about to meet. Yeah. Or, or indeed Hot Pie. <laughs> Oh my, yeah, whose yeah. who's departure from the novel I, I I mourn. Yeah, it's cruel, isn't it? I hope he appears again at some point. I don't know if it's if it's likely. Um, so it's as she's making her way towards Duskendale, the first stop on her sort of search. She she's realizing that you know Sansa Camp could be anywhere. There's no obvious place for her yeah. to go because all the family's dead. Yeah, so, you know she's thinking, what would I do? I'd I'd run for home. Well, she's not got a home anymore. So mm. she could she could literally be anywhere in the Seven Kingdoms, maybe even beyond. So the scale of the task is just so so enormous, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And to be honest with you, that actually plugs into one of the problems that I have with this whole Sansa Arya, where have they gone thing? And I mm. I know I ranted about this quite a lot with the last book as well. This sort of going for a walk, are you? You know, like I just I, I'm just like I don't have any sense of narrative tension about that because they're adrift in a world which has been so consistently shown to be totally ruthless. So as far as I'm concerned, they're already dead. You know, mm. I'm just you know I'm waiting for the chapter where somebody does them in in a horrible way, um, and then you try and get me to care about these characters by having another character go and try and look for this needle in this haystack. It's like, mm. you know, I just have no no confidence whatsoever that this plotline is going to play out but George has clearly shown that he's willing to take massive chunks of whole novels over not very much happening to these people so I'm a bit mm -hmm. sort of yeah go oh, good yeah. you know the chase storyline is still with us that's the one that I, I was really worried about losing 
<laughs> yeah, but I don't know. What, what um, do you think? I mean, do you is that just? Am I just being particularly obtuse, or do you do you feel that way too? No, I I think you're right. Insofar as it's really hard to see uh, the, these Brienne chapters, I do think yeah, she's just wandering around, and there's no um, there's no real. She's looking for some kind of clue, some kind of lead, um, but there's just it's just so hard to see where one's going to come from, and I think if I remember rightly from reading on, there were a few chapters with Brienne where nothing turns up and you're just thinking, oh, there's nothing really, nothing's really happening. She, yeah, she's yeah. just going for, I suppose it's, it's, it's interesting insofar as a little sort of walking tour of this war-torn area and you see different things around that. But in terms of the plot, in terms of advancing the plot, it, it, it sort of, it does slow at this point. Mm. Um, she does meet two hedge knights Called one's Illifer the Penniless, this old bloke who, who That's a rubbish name for a knight, isn't it? Yeah. Call me Illifer the Penniless. By yeah. the way, do you have any change? <laughs> yeah. Um he's uh he's this old chap who he actually recognises Brienne for who she is and says, Oh, you, you killed Renly and he sort of draws his sword as if he's gonna fight her and then she talks him down. And to be honest, um, it's good for him because he doesn't really have, stand a chance. He's got this rusty old sword. He looks like a soon-to-be frail old guy. So, and his friend is Sir Creighton Longborough, who is one of Westeros's greatest bullshit. <laughs> he's just constantly <laughs> talking about all these great deeds he may have made. But he's so rubbish, isn't he? He talks about how he killed. <laughs> I didn't know his name, but he was the knight with the red chicken on his shield. <laughs> yeah. As if, if you were going to make something up, you would make it up to be more impressive than that. I don't know who he was, but he must have been what five two, five three. Anyway, I kicked his ass. <laughs> yeah. The other one of his uh, the uh, he's got a story. Every single time he meets someone, he's talking about how dangerous he is, isn't he? And they, 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 they camp overnight, and when they get up in the morning, um, Brienne's like, oh, did you see anyone on the road? And Sir Illifer says, oh, yeah, there were a couple of people wandering past, but I didn't see them. And then <laughs> Sir Creighton says, oh, yeah, there were these like big group of ruffians who turned up, but I showed them my steel, and they laughed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? It's, um, it's uh, Max the Doorman from Phoenix Knights, isn't it? It's like, well, what happened was... Uh, this lad came at me. Well, I say one. There were four of them, and uh, <laughs> he just like constantly trading himself up when talking about his feats of strength. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the road, they meet these uh, this procession of uh, of, relig- of holy men called uh, sparrows, and they've got this wagon full of sort of bones uh, of basically of people from holy orders who've been killed during the during the war. And they're taking them to King's Landing for justice. Yeah. And I just thought it was quite interesting throughout these chapters, um, the prologue where you hear of the sort of the, the, the red priests all chanting in, in Old Town where they've, they've only shown up fairly recently. And you've got Aaron Damper drowning people on the Iron Islands for his religion. You've got these sparrows, sort of, it seems to be this sort of. Uh, I don't know this this vow of sort of of poverty which these people have taken and just just gone on the road. Yeah. It's just the the various ways that um, people are turning to religion to deal with this catastrophic war that's happened. Yeah, yeah, it, that is an interesting thing, and kind of, I think George Martin gets a lot of atmosphere out of religions, mm. but I don't think 
I don't have a sense that he's very adept at dealing with the sort of the emotional pull of religion to people, except in the mm. broadest possible strokes of fucked up shit has happened. Where's God at? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't really blame him for that because I think I think sadly many, if not most, authors are the same. Mm. Um, but um, and at least George Martin riffs really interestingly on religion in, in like with the drowned God has parallels with. Uh, baptism and you know the seven has parallels with the trinity and you know kind of um uh and he he plays with it in really interesting way but i will be interested to see if these sparrows kind of become slightly more prominent if they're going to get any depth of kind of of religion if you see what i mean or if it's just going to be a particularly dramatic response to the same fucked up shit everybody else is going through yeah i think the um the the best character the deepest sort of uh, religious character in this book so far for me was um thoros of Mir. you know the guy with yeah. the um yeah yeah it was with the brotherhood without banners and he seemed he had this very complicated relationship with his religion yeah and um and sort of the, he was a, the red god wasn't it and uh i thought that added a lot of texture to one area of of westeros religion but yeah you're right yeah. for the most part it's it's very much there as a as a mood and as sort of driving plot along, and it, it certainly adds a lot of texture, but maybe not so much sort of an emotional connection. Uh, yeah, I actually I think that's that's a really good analysis of it. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but you're right. And Thoros of Mir is a great character for that reason because he's kind of it's part of a broader character instead of mm. being a good reason for this person to go here and then say these words. Um, yeah, and who knows? You know, maybe we're going to get more into that with um, with Damp Hair or whoever. Um, yeah. You know, maybe, maybe maybe there's going to be some interesting nuance to his religious belief, but he does come across as, you know, not that kind of person and more of a kind of forthright fundamentalist. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right with that. And you, you never know, Thoris is still knocking about somewhere as well, isn't he? So we'll, yeah, uh, yeah, could be, uh, and that would be nice. I would quite like to end up with the, bro- the Brotherhood without banners. That would be nice. Although I, I'm not confident, because <laughs> we, we, we we left them with um, justice, didn't we? There's we a, did. That, Lady Stone. What a wonderful shorthand for that scene, by the way. If anybody's reading <laughs> past, like, decided to listen to this and hasn't read the previous book, there is a mother of a spoiler at the end of the last one, and it's unbelievable. And and we have decided to refer to it <laughs> with a reference to a 20 year old comedy show from the UK. <laughs> <laughs> justice justice um that's that's the day today by the way if yeah, after you've listened to this go and watch that because it's brilliant um yeah but yeah you're right that's where we left them and i was quite happy that they popped up there because they they hadn't been in the book for ages before that you know yeah. they were their role in the plot i think is going to become more and more important but basically in a storm mm. of swords and in a clash for kings their role was to be hanging around in the middle of the country fucking up our characters uh, but being somebody other than the phrase. That was the thing. You're either going to get fucked up by the phrase or the Brotherhood Without Banners. That's the idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they continue along the, the road, uh, Brienne and the, these two hedge knights. They meet a merchant and um, a guy called Sir Shardich, who, um, another knight. It's basically this this travelling... It becomes this bit of a travelling band, doesn't it? It's almost like one of like Chaucer's pilgrim stories <laughs> i'd love that if he'd just taken a like a hard right turn into a chaucer riff for a few chapters <laughs> just kind of started writing in really old english about fart gags that would have been yeah. amazing <laughs> now this shardich character um he shows um brienne his sigil and it's this sort of mouse on a um 
with red eyes on that mm. sort of like a, a a landscape. And I just thought with this, and then he said the mouse is me. And I thought this this was a bit of a, it might not be, I might have read it wrong, but my reading of it was it's a comment on how because when a war of this scale's happening and so many people are being killed and there's so much churn amongst who's a lord and who's not, people just sort of who fight well and manage to actually kill a few people, maybe even a lord, mm. just create their own sigils and create their own names. And that mm. seemed like something he's just made for himself. You know, the mouse is him. Um, yeah. And he's got a, a with his red eye. It, it, it almost felt. I I even saw it as just something he'd painted on his on his shield. Um, mm, yeah. And it just shows how the the old, it, how war in this situation, even more so than in many other cases, um, is it really does just shake up the entire structure of the power structure. Yeah, and I really like that as well because I think that's a, that's something you really don't see in a Game of Thrones. It's kind of like the. The poor people are there to kill or be killed or be a character in a prologue who will probably do something shady and then get killed. And it's mm. all kind of at this high-level description of politics and all of that. And um, and I think it's actually a really interesting thing to plot how this social system is kind of falling apart. Because after all, it's not doing anybody any favours who isn't already a member of one of these powerful families. And if you create mm. a situation of chaos, then there's more space for people to move around and claim things for themselves. So, despite having a name that reminds me of Shoreditch in London, a borough that I have no particular <laughs> love for, Sir Shoreditch, um, was a, I was alright with him. He, he was, he was my, my guy, my kind of guy, <laughs> which I presume means he's going to die in the next time I see him. Well, although he was quite dismissive of Brienne, wasn't he? And, and also it turns out he's... He's looking for Sansa as well for a ransom. Yeah. He knows that there's a there's a ransom on her head, and he's trying to get it. And, and this makes Brienne realize, shit, there are other people looking for her as well, and I've got to be a bit more careful about how I do it. And she, she thinks, oh, I hope she's hidden well to keep away from people like this guy. And then mm. she thinks, oh, but if she's hidden too well, I will never find her either. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, maybe he's not my guy. I like that. I like his kind of uh, his fight the power instincts, but the uh, kidnap yeah. children for money instincts. I'm not alongside. <laughs> yeah. So they got. So they have a rest at this inn, and uh, Brienne goes to bed early, and then she the <laughs> she hears um, Sir Creighton wandering up the stairs, drunk a bit later, regaling again everybody with his tale about this night with a chicken on his uh, on his shield. <laughs> um, and then she she sneaks out. Gets back on the uh, back on a horse and uh, rides off into the night, thinking that she needs to get a start on these other people and that she she needs to sort of stay on her own to to move quickly and she she can't sort of afford to start slowing down and taking it at an easier pace with groups of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So onward she goes. Onward she goes. And then we're on to Sam for next week. So that is the first. The first part of our look at a feast for crows, Dave. Um, what you, what have you made of it so far? I know it's it's been a bit different, hasn't it? But um, maybe not quite as as much of a rough ride as maybe I prepared you for. <laughs> That's true. In that, when I opened the book, a hand didn't reach out and smack me over the head with a mallet, so it, it wasn't <laughs> as bad as you'd led me to believe it was going to be. Um, yeah. Well, like I say, I'm a bit sort of. I kind of I hear the crunching of gears here, and I think this isn't 
particularly smoothly done. But at the same mm. time, if he only really worked out that it was going to be seven books at the end of the third book and had to do a load of stuff to kind of make the world make sense, obviously I want him to do that because I'm invested in the story. And I think it's, I do think it's a well-written story overall, even if this felt a bit clumsy. Um, but at the end of the day, George Martin's a pro. You know, I'm going to trust him to take me to a place that's worth going, even if the place in question is A Dance with Dragons and the rest of this book is just kind of a scrapbook, a walk in Westeros. Yeah. Um, but I, we'll see. I don't know. I'm interested. We'll see. Um, now, for, for next week, you're going to be reading from this next chapter, which is about Sam um, and, and the mouse. That's <laughs> <laughs> As far as 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 far as as far as my my book says, uh, page one seven eight, which is a chapter about Sansa, which begins once when she was just a little girl. There we go. So that's the that's as far as you go for next week. Have you got any comments on, on the book so far, or how it compares to the series, or any, anything else you want to talk about? Uh, any predictions? Although you know, <laughs> don't just read ahead and then predict what you've read. It's not very I fair in anybody. That somewhere it? around page ninety five, ninety six. <laughs> A mouse yeah. will appear. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but any, anything like that, any feedback, send it to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, and we will we will read the, the best out on the podcast. And uh, apart from that, I think we're uh, we're, we're, we're done for today. Any other final final thoughts, David, on this book so far? Well, you're about to give me like a knight's name there. Like, I was going to call you Sir David, yeah, but I'd, Sir, I'd already said Sir, David. Sir David, or like David Shardich, <laughs> or David Hackney, or something. Um, <laughs> no, um, no, no. I think I'm, I am in. I'm tentatively in. I feel like it's you know a bit of a shaky start, but we'll see. Uh, and obviously, all you've said so far has given me nothing but uh, optimism for the rest of the stuff that's coming up. So, so uh, let's see how it goes. There, there, there are some really good moments in this book. Um, so oh, now you tell me. Now you tell. We've yeah. had three weeks of. Oh, Dave, a feast for crows. <laughs> widely considered one of the worst in the series. <laughs> Deary me, it's just going to be an uphill slog. And now you're telling me there are some nuggets in here. See, you see, the first taste is free, isn't it, Matt? And then you're all like, no, hang around. There's some good stuff coming. Well, look, for, from um, just from my book at the bottom of mine, it says. Tense, surging, and insomnia inflicting by Time magazine. So you know, they, right. they don't they don't do like those kind of reviews without there being a couple of good points in the book. So. Not your words, Matt. The words no. Time magazine. <laughs> the Time magazine. All right. Until next time. <laughs> Later. Bye bye. <laughs>